Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Amen. Thank you, Sally. I couldn't see her over the, uh, <laughs> the music stand. Great job, though. Uh, we are in Psalm 130 and 131, if you have it. We're starting uh, our... Advent series. Advent simply means the arrival of somebody notable or something notable and important. Uh, Jesus qualifies as notable and important. (laughs) Uh, The uh, Time Magazine man of the millennium was Jesus of Nazareth, uh, which is which is pretty special. More important than Time Magazine, though, is the the God of this universe, and He says Jesus is coming. Is kind of the point of all of it. And so, as we come to Christmas, we look back at Jesus's first advent, His first coming, and what it means for us. And we look forward to the next coming of Jesus. Uh, We as Christians living in this period of time are in what we would call the in-between stage, or what theologians call the already but not yet. Jesus has already accomplished all that needs to be accomplished for us to be children of God, for us to be heirs of God. And yet we live in this not yet because people still die, because cancer still exists. Because there's still pain and suffering and brokenness in this world, confusion and hypocrisy in this world. And we await the day in which King Jesus comes back and he sets everything right, both cosmically and personally. And so as we look forward to Jesus' second coming, we look back on his first coming. I want to actually go back into our Bibles in the middle of the Bible. It's the easiest book of the Bible to find. You just kind of open it and you're probably in Psalms. It's a huge book of the Bible. And it's this collection of poems and songs uh, of people who are striving after the Messiah. They're, they're, They're waiting for the Jewish Messiah to come and save them as a people, but also save them as individuals. And as we look at these Psalms through the lens of Advent, these people who are waiting for Jesus' first coming, we learn a lot about us as we wait for Jesus' second coming. Now, as Sally said, it is a song. Uh, For your sake, I am not going to sing these psalms. Uh, We're we're simply going to read, and I'm just going to verse by verse go through these. uh, And and I just want to look at, again, through the lens of what what does Jesus' first coming say to us now 700 to 1,000 years, depending on the psalm, uh, after this thing was written. Uh, And this particular song was written by uh, David. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Father God, as we, uh, we come into this season of busyness, uh, God, we, uh, we have so much on our mind, so much on our heart. God, for some of us, uh, this time of year is very tough. Uh, for some of us, Lord, we're suffering. Uh, for others of us, it's a time of great joy, but a great time of busyness as well. And Lord, I just pray for all of us, no matter where we are on the spectrum, we could stop and remember the point of this season. The reason why we give presents to one another is supposed to point to the, to the ultimate present, which is your presence. That Emmanuel, that God became one of us and walked amongst us so that we might be saved, so that we might have life. And God, we look forward to the hope that one day you will return to this broken world and make everything right again. Amen. The reason these are called the uh, Psalms of Ascent is because the Jewish uh, people, as they were coming for the holy days to Jerusalem, there were several days in the year in which they had to come and, uh, and worship God, uh, they would sing these songs on their way. So they're sending to Jerusalem, and these would be the songs they would sing on their journey. And it was supposed to give them encouragement. And I think they give us encouragement also, because if you are a Christian, you are on a journey. Uh, in fact, I would say if you're a human, you're on a journey. Uh, the, the worst is when you don't know you're on a journey, when you don't realize that your life is a story that is unfolding. 
Uh, and when we don't realize that, we kind of waste our life, do we not? It's like, I'm just trying to live and, and work and, and try to make it through one week and another week. And then before you know it, you look back and you're 80 years old and you're sitting uh, in, a, in a nursing home somewhere. And you're like, man, I wasted my life. I, I, didn't even know I, was, I didn't even know I was on a journey. But here I come to the end of this journey in the blink of an eye. And for the Christian, the journey is not any easier because we are Christians. For the Israelites, it wasn't any easier because they were God's chosen people. In fact, you could say that it was even more difficult And so for this journey and for our journey, what we need is hope. We need hope. And this is a song or a psalm of great hope and and really how one finds hope in God. And here's really a a big difference for you to think about when I'm talking about hope. Um, There's two kinds of hopes. The the kind of hope that we most often use is more like a wish. You know, I I hope that this happens. Uh, For instance, like, you know, I hope that the Oklahoma State Cowboys beat the OU Sooners. You guys didn't think I was going to bring it up, but I had to. God's still on the miracle business. Uh, I rebuke you. I rebuke you. It only happens like twice in a lifetime, so I'm going to talk about it, you know. Uh, but I had nothing to do with the Oklahoma State Cowboys winning that game. It was just a wish. I, I wanted it to happen, but I, I, you know, I didn't know it was going to happen. Uh, it's the reason why my throat hurts, because I thought several times uh, during the point of that game that it wasn't going to happen. In fact, I looked at my dad and I said, I'm no longer a Cowboy fan. And then 15 minutes later, I was wanting to get an OSU tattoo. <laughs> this is the kind of hope that we often use when we think of that. It's like, you know, it's, it's, well, I just hope that this happens or I hope that that happens. This is a different kind of hope. The hope that the Bible is talking about here is a hope like a confidence or a trust, you could even say. I trust in this. It's the difference in I hope that and my hope is in. Uh, so, for instance, you know, if, if I'm flying, if I want to get to New York City and I think flying is the best way to get to New York City, I will get on an airplane. And that airplane is my hope to get to New York City. I, I, am, I am on the plane. I am dedicating myself. And my only hope is that the pilots are going towards New York City. Because if they're going towards Los Angeles, doesn't matter how bad I want to be in New York City, I'm not going to get there. And for the Christian, what we're saying is we're saying our hope is in Jesus We're wasting our life if what he says is not true. For the Israelites, they're wasting their life if what Yahweh says is not true. They're all in on this journey. And as we jump into verse 1, we're going to see how you can find that hope in God. It says, out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. He starts from this place of personal anguish, out of the depths. And the Bible speaks about depths, uh, speaks of it in several different ways. Um, I think there's like three major categories of depths that we all go through or struggles that we all go through. Uh, number one is, is this depth of, of shame that we can find ourselves in. Status is so important to humans, we don't even realize it. We, we are constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We are constantly wanting to know if we measure up. And the people who say, I don't do that, I don't measure myself to anybody, are the, are the worst people among us. Because you can't help it. We are people... Uh, who are supposed to be together, and uh, as a part of our, our primal nature, we, we have to c- be concerned about status and where we stand among other people. And what can happen is, is when our status is taken away from us, we find ourselves in this place of shame. And the depths of shame are a very scary place to be. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I, I was reading this past week about uh, a school shooter. Uh, I don't know how I got there, but he, he was described as a narcissist. Uh, very narcissistic. And you would think that person, you know, is very confident in themselves. But really what it was, was a great insecurity that he had. And when he was humiliated enough, finally something broke within him and it led him to doing what he did. 
And this is, this is so true for all of us. We are all just a couple humiliations away from being very, very deep in our own shame. And some of you, if you're honest, you've got areas in your life you hide because you're not going to allow that out because of what it would do to your status. I stand up here as the pastor of this church and I, I think about things that I've done or I think about thoughts that I've had and I, I wonder what would happen if I let those thoughts out. And, and, and it scares me. Why? Because there's something about my identity that is wrapped up in the status I have as pastor. Now, I can pretend like it's not, but it's there. And what can happen is these voices of shame can really begin to beat me down. And it leads us to one of two directions. We either get uh, overconfident, we go the narcissistic route, and what that's going to cause you to do is to become a liar. You're going to have to start lying a lot to earn your own status amongst others. And we all do this. Every single one of us tells these little white lies. Have you ever been in a conversation and you're like, I just lied and I don't even know why I lied. You know, it's like such a silly little lie. Like I said, I caught a fish this big when everybody knows I caught a fish this big. And every man in here said, amen. And if not, they are a liar. Because that's what we do to protect status. Or the other route is we can begin to gossip. In other words, I can begin to pull you down. If I can't raise my own status, I'll take your status down. Which is why our culture really, really enjoys. And it's not just our culture, it's all cultures. But we really love putting somebody on a platform just to watch them fall. Because it does something for us. It shows us that our status isn't as bad as what we thought it was. So maybe you're here today and you're in the depths of shame. Uh, The second category of depth would be uh, we find ourselves in the depths of sin. And what I mean by the depths of sin, and I think even if you're not a Christian, you'd agree with me. You probably just wouldn't use these words. Uh, But what I mean by the depths of sin is, is not the bad that I do, but it's almost like an infection that is within me. Like I want to do the right thing and I don't do the right thing. However, you would define the right thing if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you define the right thing by what God would want. But all of us experience what uh, Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. Uh, He he says something along the lines of, I I don't do the thing I want to do, and I want to do the thing I don't want to do. And we're like, what? But at a deeper level, we're all like, yeah, you know, I get that. In my best and most healthy moments, I want to be an honest person, and yet I find myself lying. Or, you know, my best moments, I want to be a disciplined person and get out of bed and and go to the gym and work out. But then, you know, I wake up and it's like, "Ah, I'm not going to do that. And we look back at these moments in our life and it's almost like something has controlled us and we can't overcome it. And we all experience this. Some of us just have more socially acceptable uh, controlling things in our lives. Uh, We're all really addicts. It's just a matter of what you're addicted to. Um, You know, if if you're addicted to drugs, if it's like, you know, you you know that you shouldn't be doing it, but you can't help doing it. You kind of look down upon in society. But no drug addict truly wants to be a drug addict. It's, it's, it's actually sad because as they shoot themselves up or they uh, smoke something or they do whatever they're doing, they, they know that they've wrecked their life and they know that they continue to wreck their life with this thing. And yet they find something that controls them that they can't stop doing. And you might look down on people like that, but I would ask you, does that same kind of controlling factor maybe play in other areas of your life that are more acceptable? For instance, you know, you know you shouldn't shop as much as you do, but there you are on Amazon again. <laughs> And we laugh, but it's true. Or how many of us want to, to possibly you know, lose weight and yet we find ourselves coping with food? We all have these areas in our lives. And some of us, uh, you know, work is our, is our coping mechanism. Work is our thing we can't stop doing. And that really ties into status as well. This is something huge in our culture. And, and I'm speaking, this is like for me also. You know, I, I, I want to work because I, I worry about what you think of me. And I know I should be at home, but here I am and I find myself driving to these things. And, and it's, it's not just the sin that I do, but it's the sin that's within me that can lead me to the depths. And man, that's a, that's a really awful place to be when you feel hopeless. I'm never going to be better. I'm never going to get out of this. 
And then the last area is something we all uh, have experienced, and that is the area of struggles. <laughs> this is just living in a fallen world. It's just the brokenness. You know, it's, it's the people that we've lost. For me, this is the first Christmas uh, that we've had without my grandpa. And I've just found myself multiple times this Christmas season thinking, man, this sucks. Like, I wish that he was here. I experienced the loss and the brokenness, and we can find ourselves in deep depression. We can find ourselves in deep sorrow over the brokenness of this world. And I love looking at the innocence of a kid, the joy of a kid. And I think what begins to rob the joy of a kid is as we grow up, we begin to experience loss. We begin to experience this fact of life, which is everybody we love will die unless we die first. And that's not something that's very encouraging on Advent. You know, you're not here for a Hallmark movie. I'm going to tell you the truth. By the way, you shouldn't watch Hallmark movies. They're terrible. That has nothing to do with the sermon. But we find ourselves in these, these depths. And out of these depths, we call out. And who we call out to shows who our hope is in. That's exactly what we find as we keep reading verse 2. Lord, David chooses to call to the Lord, to Yahweh. Listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Uh, one of the church fathers uh, says uh, that prayer is the air that hope breathes. In other words, if, if you don't have hope, you won't pray to God. The only reason we pray to God is because we hope in him. And so it's easy for us to come here and say, I hope in God. But, but when your world falls apart, what do you reach out to? Because what you reach out to is where your hope is found. So when you're in the depths of shame, what do you reach out to? When you're in the depths of, of your sin that is controlling your life, what do you call out to? In the depths of your struggles and your sorrows, what do you call out to? David calls out to the Lord. And this is the first kind of way we begin to find hope in God. Uh, this is really, when we talk about uh, salvation, so a lot of times you know, Christians will say, I'm, I'm saved. Or they'll say, when were you saved? And uh, we throw that word around a lot. And we never stop to ask, saved from what? <laughs> like, I'm saved. You are? From what are you saved? And, and the first really step to being saved is to realize what you need to be saved from. And that's those depths that I talked about. And then to call out to God. And as we, uh, as we go to verse 3, we see David calls out to God. He says, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? What we realize is in all those big categories, if you're the type of person who will come to Christ Jesus, who sees Advent as something to celebrate, then you come to the point of realizing that your biggest problem in all those categories is not what you see with your eyes, but it's how you stand before God. You begin to realize something within you. You see, when we think about status, the most important status we have is the status we have with God. And the Bible teaches me that my sin has made me an enemy of God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's a pretty bad person to be an enemy of. I remember when I was like in the uh, sixth, seventh grade, we would play football uh, you know, and practice. And the second string would always go up against the first string. And uh, this might shock you, but I was on the second string. <laughs> and it was awful because... You know, they had all the, I was like second string running back. And so they put me back there and I had uh, all of the kids who really didn't even want to play football, but their dads were making them as my linemen versus the kids who really took football seriously as the defensive ends. And, and there was a, you know, there was a, a linebacker who I, I think was 37 years old. Uh, he had a beard in sixth grade. It's like, what are you doing? You know, uh, and I always hated him being my enemy. I wanted him to be on my team because I knew I was about to get abolished. 
Okay, you take that times about, I don't know, three trillion, and you might be scratching the surface of what it's like to have God as your enemy. That's very bad status to have. And then number two, we said uh, sin. And what we find out in Ephesians chapter two is that our sin problem is worse than what we thought. We're actually under the sway of the ruler of the, diso- of the disobedient, uh, which is basically a big fancy way of saying that there are spiritual powers that are leading us in these paths. And we cannot overcome them by ourselves. And finally, when it comes to struggles, you come to the conclusion that the penalty for your sin is death and you deserve it. That God is holy and just to condemn me to a lifetime of death, to an eternity of death. And this is where we find ourselves in credible, hopeless state. Like this is, I've given you no hope. You're like, Blake, this is supposed to be a sermon of hope. You're telling me I've got all these problems. And on top of that, I'm an enemy of God. This is great. Um, so with that, I want to pray and go home. No, I'm just kidding. Verse four. But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. See, what David begins to realize is in the midst of what he deserves from God is the goodness of God. That this God who has every right to condemn him has come to save him. And David doesn't know exactly how God is going to do this yet, but we do. We know that Jesus of Nazareth is going to come and be the Savior. In John 3.17, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, I probably talk about it at least once a month. And that is, for the Son of Man did not come to condemn, but to save. And that is such a powerful verse. That God would take on flesh, and He would come not to condemn us, but to save us. It's like, I don't know if you guys ever watch Undercover Boss. Uh, I, I like watching it. It's kind of funny sometimes when the boss comes in and, and generally the boss is a pretty nice guy uh, towards those who are nice, but towards those who are not nice, towards those who are, uh, we could say, sinning against the boss or sinning against the company, they get kind of found out and it's kind of awkward for them and we're like, yeah, you get it. Okay, the, the ultimate undercover boss is Jesus of Nazareth who is God in the flesh coming and yet he looks at those of us who are sinners and he does not condemn us, but he dies to save us. And when you realize that, that changes the way you view God. So the character of God in your heart completely changes, which is uh, exactly what Psalm 131 is all about. I'm not going to read it. Uh, Sally read it for us. But it's, it's about trusting and hoping in God like a child hopes in a father or a mother. And this is exactly what we see when we understand the forgiveness of God. Uh, Romans 8 says, you know, if God would not spare his son, then how will he not also do all these other things for us? In other words, when I'm in the depths of my shame struggle or I'm in the depths of my uh, sin struggle or the depths of the brokenness of this world, I can trust that God is good and he's working things out for my good and his glory. And you say, Blake, how can you hope that? How can you hope that when it looks hopeless all around you? And the reason I can hope in that is because he did not even spare his son. That God has already showed me his ultimate character and his ultimate love for me. Then we go to verse 5. And David says, I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. And when David says this, uh, he's talking about probably the Torah, which would be the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Because at this time, this was how God had revealed himself to the world. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. uh, God gives him the commands. Uh, and then there's kind of a funny scene where Moses comes down and he, the, the Israelites are, are sinning and Moses drops one of the tablets. 
which is just kind of hilarious uh, when you think about it. Like God has given him this command on these stone tablets, and Moses gets down, and he's like, what are you kids doing? And then drops the tablets. And it's like, oh, man. So he has to go back up on the mountain. God gives him the tablets again. And this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to his people. So David says, I'm going to hope in the word of God. In other words, what God said is true. I'm going to believe it to be true even if I don't see it. What God says to do, I'm going to do it even if I don't understand how to do it. And then we get 700 years past this, and there's this amazing verse in John chapter 1. And that is that the Word became flesh. So when I talk about the Word of God, I'm not generally talking about this. This points to the Word of God. The Word of God was Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was there at the beginning. And what this means for us is we put our hope, we put our trust in Him, that what He says about us is true. And that what He did for us We believe that he did it. And what he says he's going to do, we believe he's going to do. Which radically changes and threatens all of those things that I said earlier. With our status, we believe as Christians, even though we don't always feel it, even though we don't always see it. We put our hope in this, that Jesus Christ came and lived the life I could not live. And then he died the death I was supposed to die. The reason we die is because we've made ourselves enemies of God. And yet, here comes God himself who lives this perfect life. And yet he dies. Why? He was taking my place and he was taking your place. That's what we believe. But not only that, he's given me his righteousness. So it's kind of like this. We can think of our sin as a a debt to God. Like you're a million dollars in debt and you could never pay the debt. Uh, If somebody were to come and give you a million dollars, that'd be great, right? But you'd have zero dollars in your bank account. You'd still be broke. So when Jesus comes and he comes and he dies on the the cross, that, that brings our balance to zero with God. But what he does that is far greater than that is that he doesn't just take my place. He gives me his righteousness. So I have a million dollars in the account. In other words, God sees me as he sees Jesus. God sees you as he sees Jesus. This should be so powerful to us. Some of you guys look like you're falling asleep. And this, this should be the most radical thing. This is even greater than Oklahoma State being the OU Sooners. It's, it's that big of a miracle. My status has changed from an enemy to a child of God. In my sin struggles, uh, I believe that God has given me the Holy Spirit. He's given me the church of Jesus Christ so that I might be sanctified. He calls me holy and he says, now go be holy. And that is so difficult. And it's slow and it's painful, but I believe, put my hope in the word of God that I will be able to overcome these things that hold me back. And I keep going. I keep taking another step even though it looks like there is no hope for me. I choose to put my hope in what Jesus has done for me. And finally, with the struggles. And this is where we look forward to the second advent of Jesus. That Paul says, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those without a hope. That I believe one day my grandfather will be risen with everybody else. And that although it stinks, the loss that I have without him being here, one day I will see him again. I grieve, yes, but not like those without hope. See, those without God in this world have no hope. I mean, death is... It's terrible if you have no hope. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, we're the most pitied of all men if there is no resurrection. And yet I can believe that there is a resurrection because Jesus has already done it once. So to be a Christian is to put your hope, to believe that these things are true. But it's not, a, uh, not an optimism that is, that is totally easy as we look at verse 6. Uh, David says, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. And I really love this picture of a watchman 
waiting for the morning. The watchman would watch at night uh, over the city, and he was off duty when the sun rose again. And uh, when, when he was sitting there, he never worried that his shift wasn't going to end. You know, it's not like, oh, it's so dark, I don't see the sun, I'm going to be here forever. Uh, and you don't either, by the way. Like, the sun is a miracle. It's pretty amazing when you think, like, we, we don't think, oh, there's no miracles. Miracles are all around us. Like, there's a huge ball of fire just the right amount distance away for there to be life on this planet. That should amaze you. And yet it doesn't amaze us. We, we take it for granted. It doesn't matter whether you had a bad day or a good day. You didn't fall asleep last night wondering, man, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow. Man, I hope the world keeps spinning. I hope there's still heat from the sun. No, you expect it. You know why you expect it? Because time and time again, the sun has done the same thing. It's never failed. It is so predictable, it's not even funny. It keeps doing what it's always done. In the same way, David says the Christian life is like sitting in the darkness, you know, looking at a, at a corpse of somebody you love and believing there's hope. Hearing the voice of shame in your own heart telling you you're not good enough, telling you you don't measure up, and believing, believing in spite of that darkness that there is sun coming, that there is light coming, that what Jesus said is true, that the sun will rise again. This is why uh, God also says, you know, his mercy, the Bible says, his mercies are new with every day. But just as the sun rises every day, so God's love rises also. For the Christian, we believe that. It's not that we deny that there's darkness, but it's that we believe that there's hope in the darkness. And that's what's so powerful about Advent. Because the greatest pointer forward that there will be a morning, that there will be a sun, is that Jesus Christ has already come once before. See, David doesn't have the hope that you and I have as he writes this. He, he looks back and he sees Moses and he sees Abraham and he sees God's faithful love, but we have God in the flesh himself who walked amongst us, died and rose again. It is the ultimate sunrise for us as Christians to look back on. But also in this Christmas season, as you struggle with hope, I want you to look back at what God has done in your life. Because I am uh, so easily forgetful of those things that God has done in my life. You know, as I struggle in this life or I wonder or I worry about the darkness, it's so easy for me to forget the past sunrises that God has given me in my life. The past times in which God did come through and he did what he said he would do. And so as we come into this Advent season, it's a, it's a great reminder for all of us those times in which God showed up in our life before as we trust forward that he will show up again. Verse 7 uh, and 8 are the end of it, and I find it really interesting. Uh, David waits to evangelize anybody until after he's experienced the hope for himself. Verse 7 says, Israel, and by the way, I can show you in the New Testament why this isn't just for Israel. By Israel, he means the people of God. Uh, in Isaiah, it says the Gentiles, which is you and I, unless you're ethnically Jewish, uh, th- that we are grafted into this. That when he's talking about this, he's talking about all of God's people. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord. And with him is redemption and abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. In other words, he will buy Israel. He will buy God's people back from all of their sin, from all of their struggles, from all of this brokenness. David didn't know how this would happen, but he trusted that it would. And uh, how it would actually happen, Galatians uh, chapter 4 tells us that when the time was right, when it was the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem his people. That one day that son, Jesus, would come and be the redeemer of Israel. 
Which, by the way, as we look to the second advent, that's an important thing to notice also, is that the Bible says when the time was right. So when will Jesus come back? Blake, is Jesus coming back soon? When the time is right, Jesus will come back. I don't know if that's a thousand years, 10,000 years, or 10 more minutes. I have no idea, and you don't either. And the people on TV who say they know, they don't know either. They have no idea. But what do we do? We try to predict when Jesus is coming back. Well, this was a thousand years after David said this would happen. It finally happened. God's timing is a lot different than your timing. It'll happen, but it'll happen in God's timing. And the most important part of this is God showing up in your life. The advent of Jesus in your life. The hope of Jesus in your life. Because I know that happens. And and I know you'll be standing face to face with God soon. Uh, Whether you have, you know, 40, 50 years left of life. Or, you know, maybe with medical advancements, you know, we could live another 110 years. That's really nothing. It goes by so quick. Ask anybody over the age of 70 how fast life goes. We are a vapor. And the question is whether Jesus is your redeemer or not. And uh, I love how David here, before he tells Israel to place their trust in the redeemer, he came out of the depths himself. And I think this is why, Molly, you can go ahead and come up. Uh, I think this is why a lot of our evangelism to others kind of falls flat. Because we try to get people to believe in an abstract idea of God without actually having experience God in the depths of our own problems. Like Christians should all be the type of people who say, I want you to place your hope in Jesus because I have. Because in the the depths of my shame, God found me. Because in the depths of my sin struggle, God has found me. Because in the depths of my loss and my sorrow, I found hope in the Lord Jesus. And it's not all bright and works out perfect. I still sit in the darkness. But I trust that the sun is going to rise again because I've seen it before. This should be what Christians do. And what I love about this also is that God meets us in the depths of our sorrow. He meets us in the depths, which is ultimately what Advent is about. That God wasn't far away, like a puppet master moving things around, but that he took on flesh and he walked amongst us. He bled when you cut him. He cried. He sweat. He bled when they put a crown of thorns on his head and they pushed it in. And the people who were spitting on him were spitting with spit glands that he created. Took nine inch nails through both of his wrists and his feet for those of us who are enemies of God so that we might be children of God. He meets us in the depths. God's not afraid of your sin. He's not afraid of your shame. He's not afraid of the brokenness. And he asks that you would put your hope in him and not a, I hope like a, you know, I want that to happen, but a, my hope is in this. I believe it even when I don't feel it. I believe it even when I don't see it. I'm on the airplane and I believe I'm going to end up in New York even though I have no idea which direction we're going because I trust the one who is leading the plane. Or in your life, I trust the one who is leading my life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. God, which points to the posture and the heart we have when we place our trust in you, place our hope in you. God, I pray today that we would leave here full of hope, not because there is no darkness, but because we believe the sun will rise again. God, thank you that you didn't leave us where we were, but you stepped into time. You stepped into history. You took on flesh. You walked amongst us to pull us out of these depths. Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen. Friends, if you would stand and let's worship God together.
Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.